Our text this evening will come from Colossians chapter 2. We'll finish off the chapter tonight, uh, picking up where we left off last time. And I'd like to read for us Colossians chapter 2, 16 through 23, and we'll get this whole chunk of text in our mind, and we'll review what we discussed uh, a few weeks ago, and then we'll finish off these last several verses together. 2 verse 16, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that's from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to its regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to the things that perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These indeed have an appearance of wisdom, In promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. But they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Let's pray together. Lord God, I love coming into a place with brothers and sisters who love your word and who minister it to me. I've heard so many reminders tonight that I need, that my spirit just drinks up, that you are a refuge for us, that you're a help in times of trouble, that you are everlasting arms that we can lean upon no matter what we could possibly dread, that you've prepared a place for us, an eternal place. And now, Lord, as we come to this text in Colossians, we pray that you would continue to feed our hearts and our souls. Lord, I know that sometimes we come and sit under your word or take up your word or sing your word and it doesn't move us. We know the fault is not with you, but it's with us. We grieve those times. I pray that tonight would not be one of those times for anyone here. We all are thirsty. We are all longing to cling to Christ so that we would be nourished and built up, growing and growing so that Christ would receive all the glory from the fruit of the body, the bride to which, for which he has died. So Father, would you help us tonight? These are things that are so far beyond any human, no matter who he is. So Lord, work. We've been reminded of the promise of your spirit. You've told us your spirit dwells in us. You've told us that you will call to mind all the words of Christ. You've told us that you will make the word bear fruit. So do that tonight. We pray 
We ask this in your name. Amen. Well, last time we were together, we looked at these first four verses of this all-important text here in Colossians, and we focused our attention on the danger of missing the point in religion. We've said that it is possible, in fact, it is dangerously possible, especially if you happen to live, say, in the South, dangerously possible to have a whole lot of religion and a whole lot of church and no Christ. It's possible to have a whole lot of religion and no Jesus. You can have rules and regulations. You can have festivals and activities. You can have religious experiences. You might even have a vision of God himself. But if you miss Christ... What do you have? You miss everything. Remember that we have said that Paul wrote the book of Colossians to help a group of Christians be on guard against false teaching. And the best we can tell is that the essence of this false teaching was that uh, there were men or a man or a person, there were, there were teachers who were teaching that if a Christian really wanted to experience the fullness of spirituality, that they needed to add something to Christ. If they wanted spiritual fullness, real fullness, real joy, real satisfaction, they needed Jesus plus something else, like a supplement, like a vitamin. Sure, I think he would, this person would say, trust, yeah, put your trust in Jesus, that's a good thing. But if you really want to know God, then you need to keep certain rules. And you, you really need to have an exotic Christian experience. You need to feel certain things. This, this teacher may have said, Jesus saves, but Jesus doesn't satisfy. You need more than Jesus to make you holy. And so Paul comes along, and Paul is saying that the solution to all this problem is to see Christ as bigger and better and more beautiful than you did before. He's coming along saying that the teachers who were claiming that the Colossians could enjoy this heightened spirituality, even though we don't have this exact form in our culture, I don't think, He's saying that, that even though they're saying that you could have this heightened spirituality and holiness apart from Jesus, what is really happening is they're minimizing Jesus. You're making Jesus smaller. They're saying, don't rest. Don't be satisfied in all that you have in Christ. You need more. In order to achieve this elite, super holy Christian status, it seems that they were teaching that a person must follow all sorts of rules. We could call this asceticism. I say that word because it's in the translation of the ESV text. It probably was saying that Christians must abstain from eating certain types of food, probably meat, and abstain from drinking strong drink, probably wine, and that they must observe all the religious festivals and the holy days and, and perhaps other parts of the Jewish law or other customs. The leaders had, it seems, probably come up with this list of religious rules that prohibited certain activities that the Bible does not prohibit. 
And this is something we said last time that we can relate to. Because if you're like me, when we read the Bible, it is so tempting to just see the commands. To just see the rules and to focus on those things. Yeah, here's how I think it works, right? Because once you buy into the fact that there is a God and you cannot live how you please and that you are subject to his sovereign rule, there immediately comes a sense of insecurity, Right? Especially for us sinners who see the rules and realize, uh-oh, I break some of these rules. So I've got a problem. I've got a problem, this holy God and this unholy me. And these rules tell me what I need to do for God to like me, it seems. And, and so we're insecure. So the great temptation is to look to the rules to make us feel safe. To make us feel secure. I mean, that's what's great about rules, Right? They define winning. Rules tell you how to win. The rules are a way to measure success. They tell you what is acceptable and what is off limits. Right? In soccer, you cannot pick up the ball with your hands unless you're the goalie. Right? There's a rule that explains how it works. You can't win if you're, if you're doing that, right? The rules in the scripture, it's, it seems they tell us what pleases God and what displeases God. And so the problem is, here's what we do with the rules. We, we take them even further sometimes. We distort them and we use them to tell us the score. How can we score? We're so tempted to use rules to score points with God. And if we break rules to feel like we've been demerited. We're tempted to think, this is how I get God to like me. This is how I become okay. This is how I gain self-esteem. This is how I can live with myself. This is how I get rid of all that guilt of the things that I've done in the past. We use the rules. Well, how do we do that? Well, we've talked about this in the past. Some, perhaps we do it by competition, right? By comparing. At least I'm better than her. Better than you, right? We use the rules to score more points than our neighbors so that we feel good before God. Dear God, I thank you that I'm not like that tax collector, Right? Does any of that sound familiar? We see there are some problems here. There's lots of problems. But I think the key problem, the more I've meditated on this text, is that if you use the rules to score, you don't need Jesus. You don't need Jesus. Or at least you live like that. If rule keeping is how you gain righteousness, whether it's an experience or whether it's not eating a certain meat as it was the temptation in their context, whatever it is, if you think that that's how you gain righteousness, then you have little need for the freely given, totally unmerited, imputed righteousness of Christ. Where you do nothing to receive it. Nothing to deserve it. It is given as a gift. And that absolutely offends our sensibilities in every possible way. 
Because I, right, I want to feel okay. I want to feel like I want to help a little bit. I want to be loved. And the whole point of the rules, the scriptures tell us, is not to help us gain our way to Christ. The rules tell us how much we need Christ. The rules define for us how messed up we are so that we see our need for the Savior. The the rules show us how glorious Christ is because he kept them and how sufficient he is as a rule keeper. The rules get us to Christ when we understand them like that. Not by keeping them, but by delighting in how Christ has kept them for us. And that is how we get to Christ. And here's what I've learned, and here's what I understand the Bible to teach. Once you get Christ... And once you begin to enjoy him and once you see him as he is and once you see him in his holiness and once you come to understand the beauties of the gospel, do you know what happens? You have a desire to keep the rules. Not out of guilt, not because you're trying to boost your self-esteem, but because you love him out of faith. That's all kind of a side winding way to, to understanding some of this. But do you see how this works, right? The rules are not to help us feel better about ourselves. They're not to distance ourselves from how much we need Jesus. But they are there to help us enjoy Jesus more. And to show everyone how great Jesus really is. An overemphasis on rule keeping actually makes Jesus small. It says, look at me, I keep the rules. In any teaching, can we agree, that makes Jesus look small is a false, bad teaching. It's a dangerous teaching. And that's why Paul wrote Colossians. I think that's what's going on here. The religious leaders were taking these biblical ideas and distorting them. They were either distorting the law itself or they were adding some new practices, perhaps for spiritual extra credit, or they were talking about worshiping or visions of angels, which has a long, complicated cultural context, or extreme treatment of the body and self-denial. And Paul is saying, hey, all this religious activity, all this stuff that you're doing is missing the point. Even if you have good intentions, it's missing the point. In fact, it's man-made and legalistic. In fact, all it does is make a bunch of proud Christians, which we saw last time get you further away from Jesus. Because God, what? The proud. He opposes the proud. So if your rules, if you're trying to use your rules to make God like you, and all the rules are doing are making you proud, you're failing. doesn't work. God gives grace to the humble. So they were they were doing this and all that was happening was it was producing proud Christians who were less dependent upon Christ. We said last time that we could simplify this passage by talking about how Paul is warning us about three different kinds of dangerous religion. 
three different kinds of dangerous religion. I think, and I'll review the first two and maybe expound upon them in a little different way. And then we'll, we'll look at the third one tonight. The first thing we said, which I've already talked about some, is, is that of rule keeping. Boiling your religion... And by the way, I don't have a problem with that word. Some people have a big problem with that word. You're boiling your faith down to rules and keeping rules. That's a distortion, right? You don't eat or drink certain things. You don't take part in certain festivals. Then you're good, right? Isn't this uh, dynamic dangerous in the South? It's... uh, if, if I follow a certain set of cultural religious norms, then I'm good, or I'm better than you. I was thinking about this today, and I think one of the ways that we betray that we are very inclined to rule-keeping, and, and the, the fact that we think of our religion as being very much rule-keeping is what we expect of other people, especially our children. Think about that person in your life that is far from God. Maybe it's a child, Maybe it's a family member, maybe it's a sibling, maybe it's a close friend. And think about what it is that you want for that person. Often we say, I mean, how many times have you heard someone say of a loved one, oh, if he would just get back into church. Now, that's a wonderful desire. I don't mean to to knock on that desire. But we, we can be tempted to think that if they're in church, then everything is fine. I'm afraid that many of our college students and many young adults go to church simply to keep their parents off their back. I had lots of my friends that were doing that until finally they they gave it up. You see, if we lower the bar of religion simply to attending church or to not drinking beer, then we teach our children and we teach the world, you don't need to be born again. You don't need Jesus. You just keep the rules. You just go to church. How many conversations have you had with people in your workplace and in your neighborhood? And you hear, oh, I go to church. And you're like, oh, okay. <laughs> I've learned you got to push. Well, what does that mean to you? What difference has church made in your life? What are you all studying right now? And, and push and push and push. Because the fact you go to church in the South doesn't mean anything, does it? dangerous. Any type of religion that minimizes the need for Jesus. We also talked about a second type of bad religion or distorted religion that was experience seeking. Back in verse 18, Paul encourages the Colossians, don't let anyone disqualify your faith just because you haven't had special visions. And especially because you don't worship angels. I haven't spent much time on that. The Bible says, don't worship angels, right? So, let me just make sure I say that. But he's saying, he's saying, don't, don't worry if you don't have these incredible experiences. And think about Paul. I mean, Paul's an interesting person to say that. Paul himself was converted by seeing Jesus after he ascended into heaven on the road to Damascus. That's a... Why doesn't God do that for everybody, right? Like, that's a big deal. I mean, and Paul himself had a vision that he described to be so incredible that he didn't even know which heaven he was in, 
right? Or he was caught up and it, and it was so overwhelming that God sent a thorn in the, in the flesh to humble him. And so here Paul comes along saying, you don't need these visions for a vibrant Christian life. That should be really comforting. You don't need these experiences. That's not the point. Plain, simple, good old-fashioned Christian, just hold on to Jesus. Just walk with Jesus day after day. Hold on to Christ, he says. Be totally dependent upon Christ, the head. That's how you grow. Not meeting Jesus on the road to Damascus. Hold on to Christ. I think we can totally overemphasize religious experience. Several months ago, I got a phone call from a believer who wanted me to go visit his friend. He was very concerned because his friend had just received a shocking, total surprising, devastating diagnosis that he was terminally ill, and this 40-year-old man was going to die within a year, and he was rapidly, rapidly declining. This Christian was concerned for the man's salvation. He said that he made a profession when he was young, but his life didn't show it. He hadn't been to church since he was a child, and he asked, would I go with him? I said, of course. So me and this guy, we went to the house, and before I met this man, I met his wife. And she had a similar story. She was very concerned. She wanted me to come and, and to share the gospel with her husband and to talk with him and to pray with him. They were very concerned, right? I mean, if he's going to die, then he needs Jesus. So, so there was a lot of urgency. So it was a very tense situation. And I walked in, and I sat down with this man and had a chance to get to know him and to hear his story and to talk with him. And... And I very quickly proceeded to share the gospel with him and to speak with him about his spiritual condition. After a few minutes of uh, me talking and him, him listening to me talk about sin and guilt and the cross and salvation, he, he interrupted me and, and felt inclined to share an experience that he had had uh, just earlier that week or perhaps just a few days before in the previous week. He said, you know, about a week ago, my wife asked me if she could read a passage of the Bible to me. And he said that she opened up the portion of the scripture where, where Jesus washed the disciples' feet. And then symbolically, she pulled out a, a basin and washed his feet. He said that it was the most powerful and the most amazing thing that he had ever seen and ever experienced. And that he felt so close to God. And then he said, I just knew everything would be okay. He shared that story with me through, through tears, and I was, I was interested to hear this, but what caught me so off guard was the other Christian who brought me and his wife, when they heard this story, just moments before they were totally concerned about his salvation, when they heard this story, their fears of his salvation were gone. It was as if I didn't even need to stay anymore because they had heard all they needed to hear. This man had an experience, therefore he was good. And I wanted to say, well, let's keep talking, right? I didn't hear anything about Christ. I didn't hear anything about sin. I didn't hear anything about faith. I didn't hear anything about repentance. Brother, friend, you may still be lost. And so I sat there and I was bleeding with this guy to listen and to try to understand. And the wife and the friend were so checked out. And they were laughing and they were smiling. And the conversation just totally changed. They saw this spiritual experience as, as a conversion. 
He felt close to God. I don't know this man's spiritual condition, but I can tell you this. That was not a conversion. That's not the gospel. That was a nice, emotional, spiritual experience. And spiritual experiences don't save. Just ask Nicodemus. Shoot, ask Judas. Ask Demas. Ask all those who cast out demons in the name of Christ and who will hear the words, depart from me, for I I never knew you. Friends, the Bible teaches no one gets to the Father except through Christ. Spiritual experiences don't save. And so not having them does not inauthenticate your faith. There's so many ways we could apply this. I think one of the hardest things for me as a young Christian when I was a teenager and trying to work out my faith was I didn't have these spiritual experiences all the time. I had them at camp. Well, we, we went to Bible camp, something, something similar to Panama. We went on mission trips, and God radically used those in my life to get my attention. But I couldn't keep it going, right? I'd wake up, and I'd feel blah. The Bible wasn't as exciting to me by myself in the morning as it was with, like, a hundred screaming teenagers. And I had to learn the Christian life is not primarily about feelings. It's about walking with Christ, But the text brings us to a third form of dangerous religion. And that is the danger of extreme self-denial. For those of you who like big words, this is asceticism. right? Let's look back at verse uh, 20. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to the regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to the things that perish as they are used. According to human precepts and teachings, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion, and there it is, asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Okay, so here's the thing. Discipline is good. Spiritual discipline is good. Spiritual discipline, spiritual self-discipline is especially good. In fact, the Bible says that one of the evidences that you're a Christian, that the Spirit lives in, when you, lives in you, is that you will have self-control. If you're following the CBR reading this morning, uh, first, uh, first Timothy chapter 3, we read the qualifications for, for overseers, that overseers are to have self-control. Over, this is good, right? Self-control, self-discipline is good. But self-discipline is not as good as Jesus. Some of you may, may not struggle with this at all, and some of you may struggle with it tremendously. I'm in the second category, right? Self-discipline is not as good as Jesus. Self-discipline can help us know Jesus more. It can help us point others to Jesus. But self-discipline cannot replace Jesus. We see this in those four verses. Paul's warning of the dangers of extreme asceticism, which is basically rejecting good things, good things that God has made, things like marriage, like sex, 
like parenthood, like creation, all, all different parts of creation, food, drink, even the body. There's, there's an incredibly complicated history of ideas that, that trace how, uh, how the church has struggled with this and how different philosophies have treated the body as bad or food as bad or, or all things natural as bad and spiritual things being good, the soul alone being, being good. And, 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 and that may seem foreign to us, but here's the logic, right? See if you can get this logic down. Sex can get you in trouble. So never have it. Ever, 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 never, ever, ever, ever. Never get married. Right? Because if you get married, you have sex. And of course, don't be parents. Can't if, if become parents. You have to have sex. Right? So no sex. There, parts of the church have, have done this. Ask some of our Catholic friends about that one. Or money, right? Money can get you in trouble. The Bible says the love of money is the root of all evils. So you need to be poor. Give all that you have away. Take a vow of, of poverty, right? It's better to be poor. We can do this with alcohol. Alcohol is incredibly dangerous, right? You can get drunk, and that is a sin. So never drink and look down on the people who do. Food is dangerous, very dangerous. It tempts us to become gluttons. So fast all the time. Use extreme discipline. Don't eat certain kinds of meat. And certainly, whatever you do, don't make a gluten joke right here, Nathan. It would not be helpful. <laughs> and there I did it. <laughs> and what, whatever the law, whatever the law is, right, that, that there's spiritual things tied up. In the, I mean, do you see how this works? It's, a common, it's been a common practice in the world and it's been a common practice in church history. And I think it often begins with good intentions to avoid sin. That's good. And so we put up these fences that are so far away from the fences that God put up and then we end up getting ourselves into trouble. Because what happens is asceticism or this idea actually rejects, people begin to reject things that God made. Things that God created which have a purpose. Everything in the world is to help us see Christ is incredible. Food, sex, everything, sunsets. They're all pointing to the beauty and the glory of Christ. And if you say, no, 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 I, we're not going to do anything with that. We're basically ignoring what God did when he looked at the creation and said, that is good. Do you see? Of course God gives laws and guidelines and boundaries because he loves us. He's the ruler. He decides how these gifts are to be enjoyed. And so we arrogantly claim to know better than God, claim to be pursuing God, and make a point, never mind, make a point to let others know that we're pursuing God by following such and such rule. And the idea is that if we, the more we deny our physical nature, the more spiritual we become, right? The more disciplined we are, the more spiritual we can become. But I was really surprised to see how vigorously the Bible is opposed to this. The Bible does not like this idea at all. We'll read this tomorrow if you're reading the CBR, First uh, Timothy 4. But listen as I read from First Timothy chapter 4. Paul tells Timothy, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. What do they teach? They forbid marriage 
and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. You hear that? That's that exact dynamic. God, the Bible teaches that the material creation is not evil. It's good. It can't be. God made it. And if you can use the creation in a way that is receiving it and using it with thanksgiving, according to God's law, then it is good. The problem is that's not how we use creation often. Listen as I keep reading in verse 4, 1 Timothy 4, 4. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. Did you hear that? So the regulation, this legalistic regulation that you see there in verse 21, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. I remember when I was a teenager, I put that all over my room. I totally misunderstood Colossians 2 and thought, Nathan, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Totally missed the point and put that verse up on my, this true story, right? Uh, totally, and it, it didn't work, right? I need something else. This is, not only does this not work, but it's a rejection of what God has made. And Paul said that this is self-made religion. And it appears to be wise. It looks slick. People think you're religious. That's what you're going for. Right? We've already talked about how we tend to think of rules as being good. Right? Especially if you're the one that gets to make them. <laughs> right? More rules equals more good. And surely there is some wisdom here. Right? There is, there is for the purpose of self-control, we may and we should refrain even from good things at times. For the sake of better things. For a season. But Paul says that religion, the type of religion that operates mostly, that primarily on rules, is useless, has no value. Right? So, so what's going on here? Let, let me quickly make two points. I've, I've kind of made these, but let me make this clear. Rules, rule following makes Jesus unnecessary. Humans love rules because they appeal to our self-control. Legalism says, just give me the set of rules that I need to keep, and I'll keep them, and then I'm good. I'll be good enough. They give us a way to perform. They give us a way to play the game for God's approval, or our parents' approval, or our spouse's approval, or our pastor's approval, if you're into that sort of thing. Rules become the way we justify ourselves, and if we justify ourselves, guess what? We're justified. Don't need Jesus. We love that because it is so much easier to try to keep some rules. It is so much easier to keep rules than to say, I am desperately wicked. I need a savior. I have no hope. I have no hope unless Christ makes me alive. It's so much harder you remember the rich young ruler? He was into the rules, man. He wanted the rules. Until there was a rule that said, show that Jesus is better. The other side of that is you can obey the rules. The other problem is that you can obey rules and have a totally wicked heart. Your parents, your teachers know this, right? You don't have to abandon the self 
to obey rules. As strange as it sounds, rules can become a way to gratify ourselves. Listen to this quote by Alexander McLaren. He said, Any asceticism is a great deal more than man's taste than abandon, is, is a great deal more to man's taste than abandoning self. They would rather stick hooks in their backs and do the swinging puka than to give up their sins and yield their will. I don't know what a swinging puka is, but I think we get the point. <laughs> Just because you slow down and obey the speed limit sign when you drive past that cop does not mean that you like the speed limit. And it doesn't mean that you're going to slow down when that cop isn't there tomorrow, right? Hey, it's church. Don't lie. Because apparently that makes a difference. Right? You're still in control. You see, we're fine with the rules because they give us a sense of control, a standard to live up to, a goal. And that is much easier than crucifying the old self and submitting to Christ as Lord. But a second dynamic that's going on here is that rules don't change hearts. Rules and regulations don't change hearts. Paul says this at the, verse, at the end of verse 23. He says, hey, just because you got a bunch of rules, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, doesn't mean that you have a clean heart. It doesn't mean that you don't still want to handle that sin or taste that sin. Just because you don't do it doesn't mean you don't want to do it. And that dishonors God. Rules don't change hearts any more than laws reform criminals. Sure, they can help. Laws can help keep crime at bay. But laws don't change hearts. Just because you never have an affair doesn't mean that you don't have the heart of an adulterer. Jesus said that. Rules don't solve heart problems. Think about it. If they did, Jesus wouldn't have come. Right? He'd just give us more law. We'd have 20 commandments or 2,000 commandments or something. Right? But you see, that's the whole point of the Ten Commandments. To point us to Christ. So when Christ came, he abolished the law on the air. He, he, he put it aside. He gave us something new and fresh. He did not abolish the law on the prophets. He fulfilled them. And he gave us something better. To see how glorious he actually is and to see how badly we need him. So if rules and regulations aren't enough, what is it that we do about sin? Right? Is this a license to sin? No. We don't regulate it. We kill it. We'll talk about that more in chapter 3, verse 5. But let me read that now. Put to death, therefore. Put to death. That is a violent, brutal, bloody affair. Put to death what is earthly in you. Here's some examples. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. What does it mean to put to death? What does it mean to kill sin? It's the spirit-enabled work of constantly putting to death your sinful desires and our sinful actions. Both our behavior and the desires that drive that behavior, both have to be killed. And that's a process, which is why Paul has instructed us in verse 19, hold fast to the head. Don't let go. So in light of all this, Paul is saying, Christian, you who have placed your faith in Christ, why in the world would you revert back to this man-made stuff? 
You who have true life in Christ, why do you seek fullness the way the world seeks fullness? Have you noticed religion is a popular thing? Like we're, humans are really into religion. Why would you do that? Dump all this man-made religion. Ditch the legalism, the man-made rules, the superiority, the religion for show. Cling to Christ. Hold fast to the head and there you will find life and growth. So as we close tonight, I want, I'm going to lead us in a brief time of prayer and reflection, just a minute or two. So let me just ask you to, to bow your head and take a few moments to think and to pray before the Lord. What is the bulk of your religion? 